Hello, everyone, and welcome to Goodspeed Musicals in the Spotlight, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. My name is Michael Fling on the artistic staff here at Goodspeed, and I am joined by my brilliant colleague, the one and only Annika Chapin. How are you, Annika? I'm good. I, I feel bad because I always get such a great entrance and you, you know, you also are brilliant and I'm thrilled to be here with you, Michael Fling. Well, fiddle dee dee. So Annika, what is in the spotlight this week? This week we are putting Spring Awakening in the spotlight, the 2006 musical by Duncan Sheik and Stephen Sater. A favorite of my teenage years. So I'm excited to dive in. So many memories come flashing back as I revisit the music and the script. Absolutely. And I think this one definitely qualifies as a, a game changer in the canon of musical theater. It, it really set the tone and the template for a lot of what followed it. This week's show is going to be a little different. So we're giving a slight content warning here. Spring Awakening deals with a lot of adult themes and mature topics and features a lot of swearing in its lyrics and in its book. So fair warning, this might not be one to listen to with children as we explore many difficult topics. And that brings us to the segment we're calling Remember, where we give a brief refresher on what actually happens in the musical Spring Awakening. Remember! The show begins with Vendela Bergman standing at the mirror exploring her changing body and asking her mother to explain where babies come from. Her mother evades the question and we transition to the boys' schoolhouse where we meet Melchior Gabor, an intellectually advanced young man, and Mort Stiefel, his best friend who clearly struggles in school. After Melchior attempts to defend Moritz when he accidentally sleeps through a lesson, Moritz explains that he has been haunted by dreams about women and what lies between their legs. Melchior agrees to write down everything he knows and give it to Moritz the next day. Meanwhile, we begin to see that Moritz's sexual desires are a common theme amongst his classmates, with vignettes of Hanschen masturbating to a portrait of Desdemona from Othello and Georg's lust for his piano teacher. But the girls in the community have similar urges as well. After a few days, Melchior walks Moritz through the essay he wrote for him. Moritz is quickly overwhelmed with the information and abruptly leaves, leaving Melchior perplexed. He goes to the woods to think and runs into Vendla, his childhood friend, and they truly connect for the first time. As Vendla walks home from school with her friends, Marta reveals that her father beats her with his belt and she has spent nights on the street in fear of sleeping at home. Marta begs Anna, Taya, and Vendla not to say anything for fear of ending up like Ilsa, their friend who has disappeared after her parents threw her out for similar reasons. Vendla struggles to understand these beatings and pleads with Melchior to beat her with a switch she finds on the ground. Melchior hesitates at first, but at the sight of Enlo's maturing body is conflicted with his inner urges and complies with her request. Disgusted with himself, he runs off. Moritz, unable to overcome the school's plot to ensure he doesn't advance to the next grade, is beaten by his father. Moritz plans to run away to America and writes to Melchior's mother to assist him financially in his efforts, which she cannot and will not provide despite her admiration for him. Vendla finds Melchior in the Gabor hayloft where they console each other after their intense experience with the switch. As they comfort each other, they become increasingly physical and ultimately have sex. Moritz is about to shoot himself when he is momentarily stalled by Ilsa, who asks him to play as they used to. He sidesteps the invitation and she departs, leaving him to cock his gun and pull the trigger. After Moritz's death, the school discovers Melchior's essay, which they believe corrupted Moritz and led to his suicide. 
In addition, Venla learns she is pregnant and her mother forces her to admit that Melchior is the father. Left with no option, Melchior's parents send him to reform school and Vendla is taken to have an abortion, a procedure which kills her. Melchior escapes from a reform school and plans to run away with Vendla. As he is in the graveyard waiting for her, he discovers her tombstone and is despondent. Just as he is about to commit suicide, the ghosts of Moritz and Vendla appear and urge him to live and carry them with him throughout his life. And with that, that brings us to the segment we call Why God Why? Why God? Why today? Where we talk about the central idea that lies at the heart of the show. And for Spring Awakening, that idea is that repressing is not protecting. Yeah, there's definitely a lot in this show. There was a lot of thematic stuff. There's a lot of lessons. There's a lot about growing up. There's a lot about society. There's a lot about knowledge and the use of knowledge and innocence and the the end of innocence. But that's really what we think is the governing device of this particular show. Yeah, there's so much going on in Spring Awakening. It's, It's hard to distill it down to one idea. Yeah. So we settled on that as the governing idea. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us a little bit about how Spring Awakening came to be a musical. We can never go back to before. Ooh, it's an interesting one, this one. So the story of Spring Awakening actually begins in 1891, which is when German playwright named Frank Wedekin started writing his play, which was also called Spring Awakening, but of course Spring Awakening in German. And it was subtitled A Children's Tragedy, and it was a criticism of the sexual repressiveness of -of turn-of-the-century Germany, which was very close to what the musical is in terms of its plot. But it was also extremely controversial from the get-go. I mean, if you think of what the plot of Spring Awakening the musical is and translate that into a play over a century ago, I mean, that's kind of wild to think about. So it's understandable that it wasn't actually produced until 1906. And even then, it was shut down several times. It's been a very controversial play over the course of its history. So one of the things that's really interesting about this play is that, again, as I said, it's very similar to the musical in terms of plot, dealing with children who are taught nothing by their parents and who suffer become because of it. But the major difference was in the central kind of quote-unquote love story and the sexual encounter between Bendla and Melchior, which we will talk about a little bit later, But also it had this character at the end who was known as the masked man. It was a mysterious figure who suddenly kind of out of nowhere appears and solves all the problems of the characters while discussing philosophical conundrums. It was a true deus ex machina. And if you don't know it, deus ex machina is a theatrical term that literally means God out of the machine. But what we mean when we use it in this context is it's something that comes completely out of nowhere and solves the problems of the characters, usually at the end of a play. It's not something that has been in the plot before, but it comes out out of nowhere all of a sudden. Comes out of left field and saves the day. Saves the day. Yep. It's a great term. Try to use it in your daily life. I recommend it. It's a good one to throw out at a cocktail party. It is. It is. Makes you seem real fancy and like you know something. And this character was one of the reasons that this play is considered one of the first works of German Expressionism, which is when you had a kind of symbolic character who would come in and and express these things. So that character did not survive to the musical, although we have some thoughts on that as well. So flash forward to the end of the 20th century and beginning of the 21st century, and musician Duncan Sheik, 
who at the time was best known for the hit song Barely Breathing, which was on the Billboard charts for 55 weeks in 1996. And he was also a Buddhist practicing a specific kind called Nichiren. And it was at a Nichiren Cultural Center in New York where he met Stephen Sater, a writer and a poet. And they both felt this immediate connection to each other as fellow artists. And they had this immediate connection and struck up a friendship. And Sater introduced the idea of them writing a musical together. And he had this idea that Spring Awakening, one of his favorite plays from his youth that he really loved, could become a great musical. Duncan was not so convinced, but Stephen handed him a copy of the script and they started to talk about how it could be a very unconventional musical. But from the get-go, they were not interested in writing a musical theater score where the plot was developed through song. They really wanted to have a pop rock score that illustrated the emotional life of the teenagers and the frustrations and angst that they felt in this repressed society. And this was really intensified for them because one of the things that happened a few months into their writing of this show was the Columbine massacre. And that really inspired them more to work on this particular show because they felt like that story, that horrible tragedy, really caused some of the themes in Spring Awakening to resonate even more. The idea of teenage alienation and feeling completely at a loss for what to do and how to manage your own feelings of angst and frustration. So they really wanted to give voice to teenagers and their very complicated feelings, even more so after that happened. And to help usher this process, they brought in the director, Michael Mayer, who they both credit with having a huge impact on the way the show was crafted. Michael has even said in interviews that they always viewed this as a nonprofit experience, that there would never be any kind of commercialization of this project, which is, of course, in hindsight, highly ironic considering the massive success it found. Just goes to show sometimes the best thing to get you to Broadway is just doing whatever it is the project you want to do. Being authentic to yourself, being authentic to your show. That's kind of what we always keep arriving back at. Yeah, just... Be, do whatever the show wants it to be and it'll find its path. Content dictates form. Content dictates form. Steven Sondheim. So once they were writing the show, it took seven years from the beginning of their process until it came to Broadway, which is not an unusual span of time for a show like this to find its feet. This one did have a lot of different developmental stops along the way, including at the Roundabout, which was scheduled to do a production that they canceled, and the Long Wharf, which was also scheduled to do a production that they canceled. The Atlantic Theater in New York ended up staging the show in 2006, which ended up being the exact right place for it. And Duncan Sheik has said that if it had had one of those earlier productions, as much of a loss as it must have been for them to to have those productions fall through, the show wouldn't have been quite ready for its debut in the way that it was by the time it got to the Atlantic. But yeah, there were a lot of theaters that were helpful along the way of, of helping the show find its path. So one of the people who sees the Roundabout Workshop is the producer Tom Hulse, which most audience members will recognize as the voice of Quasimodo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Mozart in Amadeus. And funnily enough, Spring Awakening was always on a list of projects that he felt could be translated into an opera. So when he saw the workshop, he was immediately taken with the piece and wanted to be its guardian angel of sorts. So it was really Hulse who had the idea to invite people to this concert at Lincoln Center in the hopes that it could get a future production. 
They invited a number of people from various nonprofits and they targeted two commercial producers who they thought would really get the show. One didn't show up and the other was Ira Pittleman, who happened to be on the board of Atlantic Theater Company that was also interested in doing the show. And he really helped broker that relationship. And as the show goes into previews at the Atlantic Theatre Company, the artistic director, Neil Pepe, has actually said that the audiences for Spring Awakening were the youngest and the most diverse that Atlantic had ever seen up to that point. So in those seven years that the show took to get to Broadway, they made a lot of changes. And they even made a lot of changes between the Atlantic production and the Broadway production, which was only a matter of uh, months because the Atlantic production closed in August of 2006 and the Broadway production opened in December of 2006. So it was very fast. But they were really finding the balance of the original plot of Wadekin's play and what they were trying to do with their story and also finding a little bit of the balance of what felt true to this time from the play and what really did not. So one of the things that they talked about a lot was the mysterious masked man and whether he had a place in the show. And Stephen Sater talked about this, about how he tr- really tried to find a way to, to keep that character in somehow and have him represent something or come in a different form. But ultimately they just decided that they couldn't figure out how to make him relevant. They also wanted a different ending. They didn't want this sort of deus ex machina that the original play had. They wanted something where Melchior meets the ghosts of Moritz and Vendla and has to sort of choose to go on living, go on moving forward with their advice. And in the original, the, the Moritz ghost was a lot darker. So they really made that change. They they did away with that character. They decided to lose the sort of German expressionism element of the show, which I think was a great change. And the other major change that they went for, which we'll talk about a little bit later, was changing the sexual encounter that Vendla and Melchior have. So they changed it from being something that was a little bit more ambiguous at the Atlantic to being something that was a little bit more consensual in the Broadway version. A topic we will explore deeper in Problem Like Maria. Yeah. Aside from that, there were other changes that they did in the scene with Vendla and her mother, in which Vendla is asking her mother to explain how babies are made, is normally much further into the play. It's in the second act. They decided to put that scene first because they wanted to make it clear that the parents not explaining anything about sex was really the cause of all of the actions to come instead of being just something that happens. They really wanted to lay that at the the feet of the parents right off the bat and set the world that way and of course there were other changes they made there are a lot of different songs that were replaced there was one called a comet on its way which they replaced by the bitch of living which is such a great song which is more upbeat even though the original song had the same theme but it was a little darker there was another song called the clouds will drift away the song those you've known replaced the song which was called the clouds will drift away because duncan chic wanted a song between the three main characters to be a little bit closer to the the themes from the song All That's Known, which is a little bit earlier, and which I'll be talking about later in my analysis. And then there were another, a few songs that got changed, including one called Great Sex, which was supposed to be after Mama Who Bore Me, uh, the reprise, but that was cut because it was just felt like it was a little too on the nose. And it was supposed to be performed during Hanshin's masturbation scene, but that scene they ended up cutting and moving into the middle of my junk. They ended up actually doing this very interesting surgery with a few of these songs because they had set out not to have plot heavy songs. 
what they found worked in some of these scenarios was, was to actually insert these songs into scenes. So it almost acted as this kind of second dramatic existence for these different characters, almost as a commentary on whatever was happening in the scene, which really actually works quite beautifully. So a lot of changing, a lot of finessing to get it to where it was on Broadway. But when it was on Broadway, it really hit. It was a great success. It got great reviews at the Atlantic. It got great reviews when it opened on Broadway, including a quote from the New York Times, which said that the show had opened on Broadway and Broadway may never be the same, which it really wasn't. And it ran on Broadway for a little over two years. It easily recouped its $6 million capitalization, which is a crazy small amount of money for a Broadway musical in this day and age. That's very cheap. Most of them are around $15 million now. Um, and it was nominated for 11 Tony Awards and won eight, including Best Musical and Best Book and Best Score. So really, really, it was a big, big hit. It was a, it was a cultural touchstone. It really, it really set off a fire within musical theater that if you think about Broadway at that point, we were exiting the era of post 9-11 entertainment that was all fun and funny musical comedies and jukebox musicals. And this is one of the first mature topic musicals to really take Broadway by storm after 9-11. It's funny when you look at that show now and you read that show and some of it almost feels cliched because the elements in it have been done so much since. The sort of setting it in 1891 Germany and having costumes that nod towards that, but having this very contemporary sound, having a sort of not fully realized physical world. So there's not really a fully realized set. It's not like you're walking to, into a house from 1891, but you can kind of get the sense from some set pieces. The idea of like these young performers pulling out microphones to sing into when they're singing these rock songs. A lot of this stuff, after Spring Awakening was done by so many other shows that now it seems like they are in that same vein when in reality they really set that template. It was a very, very highly duplicated show in many of the things, including choreography, which I think really set a huge, huge template for a lot of shows to follow. This kind of visceral, it sort of had a lot of grabbing at torsos to represent feelings. It was very different from anything that you'd seen on Broadway before this time. That was because of the choreographer, Bill T. Jones, who was really uh, someone who comes from the dance world, has his own dance company. So the vocabulary that he instilled in this matched the intensity emotionally of the music in the same way that the music is kind of poetic and not exactly a traditional musical theater score. The choreography was not a traditional musical theater choreography, but it really worked. The kind of visceral emotion of the movement was something that really struck people. And you ended up seeing a lot of that kind of style in the following years. Absolutely. Definitely paving the way for a lot of abstract choreography that follows. And even in a general sense, I mean, we're now living in a world of Broadway that there are so many shows about teenagers and what it is to be a teenager in teenage life. And this opens the floodgate for all of that. I mean, it's so many parallels of the kinds of things that were considered okay for Broadway. It Spring Awakening changed what that could mean. It did. Yeah. And some of those teenagers that were in the show i mean it was a really starry cast yeah i mean like you know if you think about this original roster i'm just gonna read off the roster really fast jonathan groff leah michelle john gallagher jr lauren pritchard lily cooper gideon glick skylar aston 
Skylar Esten, who truly had a career glow up going from the kind of oddball in this to being the handsome leading man that he is now. Alex Socha, Matt Doyle, Jennifer Damiano, Krista Rodriguez. I mean, the list goes on of young people who are now all huge Broadway success stories that got a big career boost out of Spring Awakening. Yeah, and they were authentically quite young, a lot of these. I mean, when Leah Michelle had started her journey with this show, she was only 14, which is the age Vendla is in the original play. But kind of wild to think about that. Of course, she was older by the time she got to Broadway, but this wasn't a case of 30-year-olds playing young people. They were authentically young. And they really resonated with the young audience, just as the show did. There are some very funny stories about the fans at the stage door, including my favorite, which is that Jonathan Groff, who is the handsomest, was asked by fans to spit in their program sometimes because he is someone who tends to spit on stage. And so I guess just having some element of Jonathan Groff spit as part of your experience was highly desirable. Interesting, too, that a show as successful as Spring Awakening at the Tonys ultimately only ran for about two years and definitely recouped its capitalization. But in late 2008, there was a huge stagehand strike on Broadway that ultimately saw the closer of a lot of shows just because they couldn't financially recover. And I think Spring Awakening fell a little bit victim to that, which is a shame, but also happens. And the show, of course, was massively successful after its Broadway run internationally. The London production won four Olivier's, including Best New Musical. It's been translated into a number of different languages, including Swedish, Hungarian, Japanese. The show really had a ton of international appeal, which I think speaks to the universality of its message. And of course, the show has been massively successful in educational productions, both collegiate and high school. Obviously, it's a show that deals a lot with teenage emotions, and that is quite easy to connect to as younger actors. The most high-profile production after the original Broadway run has to be the revival that played Broadway in late 2015 that began as a production at Deaf West. Directed by Michael Arden and featuring a cast that mixed deaf performers along with hearing performers and featured the talents of Krista Rodriguez, who had been a swing in the original production, Andy Mientis, Patrick Page, Marley Matlin, Cameron Mannheim, and recent Tony Award winner, Ali Stroker. So Annika, go ahead and take us into the words and show us what's inside all that's known. Right, so we are going to dive into All That's Known, which is the second song in Spring Awakening. If you want to hear the whole thing without me interrupting you, uh, go right now and you can find it on YouTube or Spotify or on the cast album itself, whatever you would like, but listen to it all the way through and then you can come back and join me. All right, so either you've done that or you're like, whatever, that's fine. We can hear it through the snippets. Um, So let's dive in. So this song, as I said, is the second song in the show after Mama Who Bore Me, which is a bit more general and uh, it's all the girls kind of singing together a little bit, although Seder and Sheik are very clear to to specify that none of the songs in this show, according to them, are really quote unquote traditional musical theater songs in that they are not really plot forwarding so much as they are emotion illustrating. I always have a little problem with that kind of definition because I think that's just really reductive as to what musical theater can be. And also pretty much everyone who ever says that breaks their own rules, which they definitely did in this show as well. But 
for what it's worth. Anyway, so we've had Mama Who Bore Me, with the, which is the girls, and this is the next scene. And we're really meeting our protagonist, who is Melchior Gabor. And this is a really classical I want song, which is what we call the song that introduces you to what the protagonist wants. It usually comes about here in a musical. It's usually the second song, first song maybe, because you really need to know that right off the bat. You need to know what the spine of the story is going to be. And the spine of the story is pretty much always one protagonist or maybe two protagonists, just those sort of classical dramatic definitions. And this is certainly that. So the context is that they are in class. All the boys are in class because the girls obviously don't study with the boys in this community and they are reciting latin moritz who has been asleep which we found out later he's been asleep because he's been kind of tormented by these sexual feelings and can't really sleep and the teacher calls on him to recite a line and he messes it up and then melchior steps in and manages to come up with a pretty brilliant explanation of why moritz's error might actually be a viable interpretation of the line and the teacher pretty much shuts that down but then Melchior asks, isn't it fair to have more critical thought or interpretation? Is, is there no more room for critical thought or interpretation? And the teacher basically says that's not what he's saying, that Moritz just made a mistake. And then he hits Melchior, and then this song happens. So Melchior has already shown off his pretty astounding mind here. But also he's, he's kind of, I mean, the teacher is not wrong to say that Moritz, who's a bit of a, a mess, a well-intentioned mess. He's not a rebel, but he was not really trying for a lofty interpretation. He really just was asleep and then didn't know his stuff. But anyway, so then we go into this, what the stage directions call a shimmering song light, which means that we're sort of removed from the reality of the plot and the students. But obviously it isn't totally removed because then we hear this. Litera multum ile et teris yactatus et alto. We superum, sci wi, memorum, unonis, all that's known, history and science, overthrown at school, at home by blind men. All right, so. First off, we have this really brilliant, brilliant thing that they're doing here. There's no melody at all at the beginning of this song. And it's clear that they've intended this to be this way because it's on the cast album and the basically lyrics begin with this recitation, even though it's not melodic at all. It's just this rhythmic droning recitation of Latin by the schoolboys. And you can just hear how dull it is and how devoid of any meaning it is for these boys and for us. So it's kind of the perfect counterpoint to this song because it highlights exactly what Melchior is saying about learning, that the way that people are teaching history and science is just ground into dirt by this boring, repetitive, just dull recitation that's just becomes more of a kind of rhythmic action than it does any sort of active alive thought so and of course that's what we just saw in the scene as well melchior wants to discuss and analyze but the teacher is not interested at all so this droning misery is the kind of perfect emotional baseline from which melchior departs and of course we can hear it in his lyrics too everything that's known in the world is actually defeated by quote-unquote blind men both at home and school so it's not just about teachers for him it's about parents it's about everybody who's teaching knowledge or has knowledge that children need we clearly know that he loves the learning and the information but he's smart enough to see the way that it's 
flawed in this world. So he's already seeing the world very clearly, seeing the world from a remove kind of, which is impressive considering he's a student and a kid and he's just been hit by a teacher. But that's also something too about him. This isn't an angry rocky kind of rebellious sound which Moritz is going to have later in some of the songs. Melchior is not coming from a place of of rage here or even of great emotion. This melody is very contemplative. It's considering. It's contained. He's really just thinking things through which is telling us a lot about who he is. You doubt them and soon they bark and hound you till everything you say is just another bad about you. All right, and then we get a little bit more there. He gets a little bit more melodic energy here when talking about the conflict. If you doubt the teachers or the authority figures, presumably at both home and school, they bark and hound you. So he's kind of taking it a step further there. They're not even human anymore. They're dogs, this kind of dog energy, and they're turning everything against you. So it's not just that they're withholding information and overthrowing the information by making it boring and rote. They are actively attacking you when you want to know that information which is obviously what we just saw and the line till everything you say is just another bad about you is so interesting because obviously that is not a grammatic line bad is not a noun in that way you can't say that something is a bad about you and presumably melchior would know that since he's clearly very smart and doesn't seem like the kind of kid who would make grammatical mistakes like that but this is where stater and chic have done something really interesting the songs are in separated emotional contemporary space for these characters as they've stated and they're very poetic. So both of those things are kind of an interesting thing. So this line, another bad about you, in another context, in another show, could feel just wrong, like a bad lyric. It's It doesn't make any sense. They've maybe forced something to scan correctly and it, it's you've lost the meaning. Or you could say that the poetry was trying too hard a little bit. But in this context, because it's something contemporary, because it's so much about youth and teenagers, and because it's so poetic, these writers have a knack for making these lyrics sound like how teenagers talk. You kind of understand what another bad about you means from the context. You know, they turn everything against you to make it seem like another, a ding against you or something like that. But it kind of sounds like something teenagers might say amongst themselves. You know, teenagers are forever coming up with new slang, new words. It's it's almost impossible to keep up with it. So this has that feeling. It, it kind of feels like Melchior is just talking in a vernacular that maybe you don't know, but you can get there. So it's really locating where he is and where these kids are in these songs, which is really fascinating. All they say is trust in what is written. Wars are made, and somehow that is wisdom. Thought is suspect, and money is their idol. Nothing is okay unless it's scripted in their Bible. All right, and we get another verse expanding on what he said before. Not only is independent thought suspicious, but nobody's really questioning anything. And they're saying things like war is good, ultimately, which doesn't make any sense because war is bad. So he's really just deepening this argument for us. And he's bringing in religion, too, in a way that lets us know that he is separated from that as well. This is not something that he really belongs to. But I know there's so much more to find Just in looking through myself and not at them Still I know to trust my own true mind And to say there's a way And now we really break free. We can feel this melody breaking free. 
and we're getting to the meat of the song. The droning stops, it falls away entirely. The instruments really pick up with this kind of driving rock sound, and it really stretches out. We can feel that Melchior is on comfortable ground here, more than the sort of contained earlier part, which is counterpointing that recitation. We hear him reaching in this, I know are these big yearning notes. This is Melchior's truth, and it's his battle cry. He knows this by looking through himself and not at the authority figures. So it's a kind of call to arms a little bit that he's going to search within himself. He's going to trust his own true mind to find a way through this, which presumably is sort of childhood or adolescence, until he can be free to think for himself, really. And it's interesting that he says he's going to trust his own true mind. That is something that marks him as special, but it also is the thing that's going to be part of his downfall. On I go to wonder and to learning Name the stars and know their dark returning I'm calling to know the world's true yearning The hunger that a child feels for everything they're shown All right, so now we're back again in this more contemplative place from earlier, from the, ver the first verses, but it's changed. The band feels a lot more present now. The instrumentation is a little bit looser and a little bit more fun. I mean, we get that little flourish after the stars and their dark returning. Melchior is now dominating the song instead of being more of the counterpoint to the recitation. So this is really where he's flying free. And of course, this is expanding on his mission statement. He's heading on to wonder and learning. He's calling to know the world. Remember, this is an I want song, so we're learning who this character is and what's going to define him. And we get another line in here, name the stars and know their dark returning, is another one of those lines that's poetic and doesn't quite make literal sense. In the mouth of an adult, that line could read as sort of insufferably poetic, but these are teenagers. They feel things so much. This feels right on kind of capturing that sort of almost emo sense. And what's interesting, too, is that there's obviously a lot about children and parents in this show. Melchior in this song is never saying that he knows better than adults or he's never saying he knows more than them, that he's aligning themselves with them in some ways, even though he's clearly a world-class intellect and a teenager. And teenagers love to think that there's nothing that they can be taught, that they kind of know better. But that's not quite it for Melchior. He wants to learn everything. He still knows that he has a lot to learn. And he's aligning this hunger that he has to learn it with children, not with adults. It's a very tricky balance here. He's still very much on team child and he sees that there's something pure and wonderful in a child's hunger to learn. So he's not the cocky teenager who's saying, you know, ugh, teachers have nothing to teach me. I know, you know, they, they don't know anything and I know everything and I'm so much better than them. That's really not it at all for him. He wants good teachers to teach him, really. He does not have them. He's going to have to trust himself to find a way through this. He's going to trust his own instincts. So it's a little bit more subtle. It's really interesting. You watch me, just watch me. I'm calling, and one day all will know. You watch me, just watch me. I'm calling, I'm calling, one day Passus dum condret urbem.
All right, so here we get this part that's actually the true call. And here he does sound a little bit more like a child than he did at the beginning of the song. And a little bit more like a classic musical theater hero. Watch me, one day the world will know about me. Feels very in that vein of not just musical theater, of all kind of heroes who are setting out, you know, everyone from pretty much Luke Skywalker to Hamilton. I mean, it's that standard kind of, I'm, I know where I, what I'm up to and I'm going to be out there and everybody's going to know my name. It's a little cocky. It's a little naive because inevitably there's much more to learn than they even can suspect. But they've nicely ended his last no, his last line in a place that still feels a little unresolved, not triumphant. He's not totally sure about this part. He's saying someday all will know, but he's also tempering it with a little bit of uncertainty. And then beautifully, the students have the final word. We're back in the classroom. Just as the beginning of this song was just the solid recitation, the end of it is the solid recitation ending and the scene resumes from there. One of the other things I love about this particular song is that what the boys are reciting so dully is the beginning of Virgil's Aeneid, which is a classical hero's journey, the journey of Aeneas home from Troy. And this song is us learning about his protagonist and his quest which is obviously very different. So although the styles of the two parts are extremely different and sort of running a counterpart, Melchior is singing about knowledge, the joy of knowledge, knowledge of life, of wonder and learning. And the recitation is just like all the bad parts of education, which is just the sort of boring, repetitive, excruciatingly miserable, like you learn this and then you spit it back out. There's nothing interesting about that at all. What they're singing about are kind of the same. It's, it's a mirroring hero's journey. And that last line that the boys stay in the clear is specifically about how Aeneas has to go through many things before he can found a city which is also what Melchior is going to have to do before he becomes a fully grown up person at the end of the show. So it's like a tiny little Latin Easter egg there from the writers, which I think is really great. And indeed, this song will come back at the end of the show in the form of Those You've Known, which is almost the last song. There's Song of Purple Summer, which we'll talk about later. But that song is the exact same melody. But in that version, it's Melchior with the ghosts of Moritz and Vendla, who are stopping him from killing himself. And it's mostly their song, not his. And they're reminding him that the people he has known will always be with him in his memory. So ultimately that song counters this one. All that's known versus those you've known. We can see it in the title alone. And we realize that what Melchior is excluding from this version of the song, friends and the reality of the world that aren't lofty poetic ideals or the frustrations of a kind of very structured educational system, that's what he's really going to have to learn about. He's going to have to learn that the people in your life are one of the most important things there is to know, there is to have in your life beyond this kind of intellectualism and knowledge of the world. You have to look at the people around you more so for a good life. And the other thing is just that as much as he loves to think of this dichotomy of the structure, the constriction of the society around him and religion and home and, and school versus this kind of beautiful childlike wonder and hunger to know everything in the world, what he's not really giving enough credence to is the fact that there's a very real reality that exists in the world separate from structure of it like Vendla getting pregnant has real consequences you know he he likes to live in that lofty pure world that his heart has taught him and his heart is leading him to but 
it's just not that simple. So that's what he's going to have to learn. So at the end of the song, we know a lot more about Melchior. He is extremely thoughtful, clearly very smart. He's very frustrated at the constrictive intellectual world around him, but he's not really someone who's motivated primarily by extreme emotions. He's not full of rage in the way that Moritz is. He's not full of shame. Moritz is really the emotional counterpoint to Melchior's intellect. I would say. And we also know that he's a little bit cocky and he thinks that one day he's going to leave his mark on the world. So as much as he's not really a typical teenager in this song, there's a lot about him that's definitely located in that teenage world of I can do everything. And of course, that's going to set us up perfectly to go forward with the knowledge that he has that he shares with Moritz, which has questionable results, with his own journey, with his trusting of himself. It gives us all the tools in the toolbox. And I just love how it uses that recitation as part of the song. It's such an interesting, smart choice from these writers. So it's a very cool song. And with that, we have one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that are a bit problematic with the show. So Spring Awakening deals with a plethora of mature topics and themes. From emotional abuse to physical abuse to sexual abuse, it really runs the gambit of harsh topics. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of things in there that it's unafraid to really dive into. So Annika, let's start with the relationship between Vendla and Melchior, which obviously was heavily adapted from the original source material and changed a little bit. But I think even with about 15 years hindsight from when the musical Spring Awakening premiered, the conversations we've been having as a culture about consent and sexual assault has changed dramatically. With that point of view, how does Spring Awakening stand in terms of our contemporary views on the issue? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. Obviously, in the original play, the sexual encounter between Vendla and Melchior is much clearer and it's much more clearly a rape. Melchior really forces himself on Vendla. The next day she has a sort of Ophelia moment of kind of being a little bit shattered by this encounter. And the writers of the musical originally went with something a little bit more in that direction. But they really didn't want it to be that. They wanted Melchior to be someone who is much less villainous than the Melchior of the play and who really was interested in sexual encounters not only from a male perspective but specifically from a female perspective which is what he says he imagines and in that song touch me it's really him imagining what sex is like for a woman so they wanted Melchior to be someone who was interested in giving a woman pleasure specifically but apparently when it was at the Atlantic they still went with something that was a little bit ambiguous in terms of consent and obviously, when we're talking about Vendla, too, we have a, a different kettle of worms because Vendla is someone who is so innocent and so lacking in any sort of practical knowledge. We see from that first scene, she has no idea how babies are made. She really has no idea about anything sexual, but she's drawn to the sexual in the form of the the switch scene when she wants to be beaten with a switch. She kind of is feeling her way towards something that she can't quite articulate yet. Obviously that scene is really interesting in terms of being both like a very kind of adult S&M feeling thing, but also very childlike in that way that children will sometimes just explore things that they don't totally understand. Curiosity in children leads to odd circumstances that in adult view seem quite different than they 
are to the children, I think is probably a fair way to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think in that scene, it's clear that she's not thinking like, I'm going to explore S&M because she doesn't really understand what sexuality is, but she doesn't, she's drawn to feeling something extreme in the form of this, this beating that, that her friend has had. So whether it's sexual, whether it's something that's just about kind of experiencing life things, it's a very interesting scene in that way. But when we get to the scene in the hayloft with Melchior and Vendla, she can't quite give consent in the way that we understand consent today because she really doesn't understand what she's consenting to. They've made it very clear that she has moments where she's asking him to stop, but also moments when she's giving him permission to continue. So it does feel a lot more like something that she is participating in than it, than it probably did at the Atlantic. But especially in today's world, when we're very careful about consent and we know what that means, it still is something that people have a problem with because Melchior does know some of the consequences of this, as his father points out towards the end of the show. He's written this whole treatise about what happens with sex. He understands pregnancy. So he does understand the consequences of this act in a way that Benla really does not. So that inequality does kind of tip the balance. I think it's a really interesting thing. I mean, I personally feel like it's something that I would not call a rape because it's two very young people exploring these things that they don't fully understand so that feels like a very different connotation to me than what we mean when we usually say rape and the kind of power dynamic that's present there but it is something that you have to grapple with when you do this show also keep in mind a lot of the times that scene is presented you do not look away from it it happens right in front of you it's very jarring the original you saw Leah Michelle's breast which was an interesting combination of this very childlike person who's growing who's becoming a woman who has these sexual feelings that she can't articulate participating in this thing and, and Melchior as well. And I think part of what the musical is saying is that you are going into this with this knowledge that you have, with this understanding that both of these characters do not have. So your perspective on it is an equal part of this in some way. You are bringing what these adults in the society have that these children do not have. Even Melchior, who does understand what sexuality is, at the end he says, I was such a fool, because what he didn't give credit to was the idea that if you get a girl pregnant, it can literally end her life in this society in which he works. He doesn't give enough credence to the society that he is actually living in, and that is kind of his growth over the play that he has actually done great damage as much as he wants to pretend that living in this lofty intellectual world that's full of feelings and you kind of do whatever you feel and whatever you want to do which in his mind is very pure in reality it's not that simple and i think it's interesting too that so much of the marketing campaign around the show features the image of leah michelle and jonathan groff in the hayloft it's central to what they feel the show is exploring and talking about you're so right to acknowledge that Melchior is aware of some of the potential consequences of the actions in the hayloft, but he doesn't fully comprehend it. And even though his parents are, particularly his mother, is quite a more liberal in the sense of less structure and less boundaries in terms of what he can read and what he can teach himself and the topics they talk about at home, they're still not being effective parents in the sense of really fully educating their child on sexual topics. Yeah, the other thing I think is interesting about this is that obviously this was written in 1891 in Germany. And now when we're recording this, this is 2020 in America. When it was on Broadway, it was 2006. But we're dealing with a sort of contemporary, different society, different place. And th this is not a topic that is irrelevant to our 
current life. I mean, we, we still fight this fight in terms of how much to teach children about sexuality. In a lot of places in this country, it's really frowned upon to tell kids anything about sex at all. So it's kind of sad that this is still a message that needs to come across to such a degree that, that giving your children absolutely no knowledge of what sex is and what the consequences are and what the elements of it are is not going to lead to children not having sexual feelings. Right. And the show doesn't punish Melchior for his knowledge. The show, you know, punishes the fact that he doesn't know the full reality mm-hmm. of his knowledge. The lack of the issuing of that reality is the problem, not his knowledge of the problem. No, no. He just is given no framework in which to manage it because he's not allowed to talk about this stuff with anybody except for his friends. He said he learns everything from books. And even in the school setting, he gives a quite academic argument really to save Moritz. It's really a character development moment to show that Melchior is a good guy. But within that character building moment, we see that this school is not a place where ideas are welcome. The school is a place where the teacher talks and you write it down and you behave. You're being forced into a way of thinking. And that's not the way Melchior has been raised. And it's not the way his mind works. And it's interesting Leah Michelle mentions in the book, In the Flesh, which is a great book about the making of Spring Awakening and things that to her, Melchior, you know, Melchior Moritz and Vendla are the embodiment of the mind, the heart, and the body. Melchior representing the mind, being intellectually inquisitive, and that being what feeds him. Vendla being a heart-centered character that does what she feels and is there for people emotionally. And Moritz being so wrapped up in the changes in his body and how he feels in that way that he can't grapple with the reality around him. Which I think is an interesting and very astute point about the three characters and how their separate identities ultimately lead to their either tragic ending or their growth. So much like any great musical, Spring Awakening has a few leaps of fancy that don't quite make a ton of sense, a little bit of some plot inconsistencies, one of which I personally realized while we were recording the show, which is like, well, has Venla never experienced menstruation? And she didn't like go to her mom about that. And that wasn't the signal to like talk to her about the stork not being real anymore. But I digress. I'm not a lady. I don't know a lot about those kinds of conversations. However, Annika, you have some thoughts on one of the central characters in the show and some things that don't quite make sense. Or don't quite add up, I guess I should say. Don't quite add up. Yeah. And I don't mean to make this section like Annika Chapin's dramaturgical notes about shows, but <laughs> definitely one I have. And it's funny because I love this show. And I, when I taught at Pace University, I taught script and score analysis. This was a show that I often would include in the syllabus. And this particular issue was something that my students were already, were always uh, very amused by, but also a little thrown by. So my thing is about the character of Ilsa, who is a character you hear about before you meet her as someone who has kind of been thrown out of her household. She's now living in a sort of bohemian arts community. She's as old as the other people in the show, which I think in the musical version, we're supposed to think that they are probably 16, a little bit older than the original play. So she's an exile. And then she appears very out of the blue when Moritz is preparing to kill himself. And she offers him the chance to go back to their sort of 
childhood in, in a sort of quasi-symbolic sort of surreal way that they can just go play together as they did. He doesn't take her up on it. She disappears in also kind of a surreal way. He regrets not having taken her up on it and then he does kill himself. I love that scene. I think it's a great scene. And what I love about it partially is speaking about the play and the, the mysterious masked man who appeared at the very end. Ilsa here kind of feels like a similar thing. She comes out of nowhere. She talks about these sort of disturbing things that happen to her in these arts communities about these men that she's presumably sleeping with, although she doesn't really actually get into that too clearly. She doesn't explicitly say she's sleeping with him. She doesn't them, explicitly say so. It alludes to it. It I'd does say. allude to it. They're painting her. It's It all feels very clear. Poking her with things. Yes, and, that's right. Yeah. She seems to have mm-hmm. a, a more worldly knowledge. And then the way that she sort of symbolizes the lost childhood in ways. They sing together, Don't Do Sadness and Blue Winds, this kind of beautiful counterpart melody for each of them. And then she talks about having spent the night in a snowbank overnight. There's something that seems like it couldn't possibly be something that a person could survive, which leads me to the thought in this scene that Ilsa could be a ghost. She feels like she might be a ghost. I think it's brilliant. I I think it's a fantastic idea, frankly, but yeah, go for it. I'm into it too, because I just feel like I'm, and I'm surprised. I'd love to talk to the writers about, you know, they tried to get this mysterious masked man in there, but they weren't able to, but she kind of feels like she could stand in for a lot of that. And obviously that would be an interesting counterpoint to the end of the show. And you would never need to make it explicit. I think that's just one way you could go, except that, and this is what kind of drives me a little bit crazy about this, is that she then just kind of randomly appears with the other girls having received a letter from Melchior which to me completely undercuts all of the kind of surreal magic of having her appear in this one scene, offering a kind of symbolic return to childhood, because then you're like, wait, what is she, where is this colony she's living in? Why is she suddenly back in the town? Where is she getting mail? How is Melchior sending mail to this person who's like sort of not around very clearly, this exile? And we've certainly never seen her interact with Melchior or any of the boys other than Moritz in that one scene. The girls obviously have knowledge of her, but it does feel like an odd, almost band-aid that needed to be fixed yeah well she does say that they they would play together uh morris melchior Sendla. so there's the sense that they were a foursome sort of but it's still it just raises a lot of practical questions that i don't think you want in your head about this character and giving that section to a different one of the girls would have been easy so i really don't know why they made that choice to not leave that kind of ambiguous and just have her appear in this one scene and then at the end in purple summer which we'll talk about too but it just felt a little bit unthought through for me. I, I feel like there's another draft of the show in which they just simply let Ilsa only exist in that one scene and then at the end and keep her away from the kind of practical daily life of the other characters. I think it would have really been a better choice. I think it also speaks to how successful they were with interpolating this surreal expressionist vibe with the show mm-hmm. and this concept musical that we flash back and forth between a contemporary rock concert and 1890s Germany, it it speaks to how well they wove those worlds together and how well staged and put together it all was that it leads this question to be asked Mm -hmm. or to be explored. So I, I think it's a really interesting idea. I would love to know. I'd love to know. And could you just you know, cast one more girl or just reassign those lines to be to Marta, Taya, or Anna. I think probably, I'd have to go back and look at it, but probably. I think so. so. I think there are worse ideas. Yeah, I agree. Um, And then the other thing that always gets me is Song of Purple Summer, which is 
in a show that has a lot of poetry in its lyrics, it is the most overtly poetic song in the show, which is all well and good. It's obviously the last song in the show. It has absolutely nothing to do with the plot, but I find it too much. And this is just personal taste. I mean, I am obviously a musical theater dramaturg, so I like when the songs in a show have a real purpose there. And I think as much as Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik claim that they were not interested in, in creating a kind of traditional musical in terms of plot, they did actually put a lot of character development and plot in some of these songs, but not Song of Purple Summer. To me, it, it just tips it a little too far. It's so much a mood and so little uh, an actual meaty song. So it's not my favorite. Well, and I understand the impulse to have it, you know, live in a poetic, you know, yeah. like uplifting moment. It certainly helps lift the end of the show. And the show is very successful in its poetry in so many ways. Yeah. I guess the part of it is, is that for me, it's too poetic. I don't understand what they're talking about. I mean, there's a lot, and this is, again, because the show exists in a sort of poetic world there's a lot that you can analyze like there's a lot in the lyrics about color obviously blue wind purple summer there's a lot of that kind of stuff lots of nature tons of nature tons of nature a lot of stars and a whole bunch of stuff so it's a very rich text that way but i can't tell you what that song's purpose is my practical brain is like i don't know what you're trying to tell me with this it's it's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around and that brings us to our favorite segment, Our Favorite Things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we list three of our favorite things about Spring Awakening. So Annika, what's one of your favorite things about Spring Awakening? I'm going to give it to the character of Hanshin, who I think is is really a great character. I think they've done a very, very smart thing with this character because... As I mentioned with Melchior and Vendla and Moritz, you have a bunch of characters who are all working somewhere on the spectrum of innocence to experience, whether it's like Melchior's kind of intellectualism, but separation from society's rules, desire to be free from society's rules. Um, Moritz, who is kind of obsessed with working within the rules of society and cannot do that. You have a really interesting social picture of these different characters and how they fall out in this in this world that they live in, which is obviously very restrictive, very close-minded, as we see in the in the classroom. And then you have Hanshin. And what I think is so interesting about the show is even though Hanshin is a more minor character, certainly not one of the leads, I think you end up with that show thinking, Hanshin is probably actually the smartest character on stage. Because unlike Melchior, who clearly is brilliant academically and has a very, very intelligent mind, Hanshin is the character who actually is able to articulate that he understands what he wants. He understands who he is in terms of his sexual desires and that he's attracted to men, which is something that he in general is not okay in that society, clearly. But he also understands society and he understands how to work within society so that he can both be doing what it is he feels and what it is he wants while also ascribing to society rules he basically knows how to work within the system and so in this very kind of subtle way they're giving us this character who is in contrast to all these other characters who have 
failed for some reason or another at working within the system in which they live. But Hanshin understands it. And you get the sense that he's going to do just fine. And it's interesting because in the Deaf West production, they had Andy Mantis playing this role and they, they dyed his hair uh, kind of white blonde. And I obviously have not spoken to Michael Arden about this, but there is something about Hanshin, even though it's 1891 in Germany, there's a sort of self-protection and self not selfishness exactly, but self-preservation and a sense that he's going to do whatever he needs to to make sure that he comes out on top. That I think that they probably were nodding a little bit at the idea that someone who's Hanshin, who's 16 in 1891, is probably going to be someone who's a Nazi later in that century. It's a particular portrait of a, of a kind of personality that that is ultimately usually quite successful because they're sneaky in the right ways. And also in his seduction of Ernst, a real contrast to Melchior and Benla, which is obviously much purer and much more well-intentioned. I think Hanschen knows exactly what he's doing in a way that makes him seem a little bit older than the rest of the kids, but he's he's not older than them. He's the same age. He just somehow has a savvy that the rest of them do not have. So my favorite thing about Spring Awakening is is actually all of the friendships that I have because of Spring Awakening. We've mentioned before that it was a musical that really defined a certain generation, and I'm absolutely a part of that generation. And as I was going back and listening to the music and reading the script, I reached out to so many of my dearest friends because it brings back such memories and it perfectly evokes that time in my life. And I will always have that sentimental connection to it. To be in those teenage years and filled with angst and filled with all those hormones and just how much it spoke to that and how much I felt the show and the score spoke to me and evoked what I was going through as a teenager. And every time I listen to it, it brings back those memories. And and to me, that's what's so special about it. And it didn't just do that for me. It did that for an entire generation. We've touched on the intense fan base that developed around the show and how the guilty ones and so many of these fan platforms that Spring Awakening started led to what we now consider Broadway fandom. So as a generation, I feel like we own Spring Awakening. And I'm proud that we own Spring Awakening. It's a great show and so visceral and so connected to what it is to be a teenager. And it really spoke to my generation. So it might be a cop out as a favorite thing, but it's my favorite thing about Spring Awakening. I love that. So my second thing is something that I find really interesting in this show, which is that the show makes it clear that their depiction of sexuality is not limited either. They have a really wide range of how the sexual feelings of these students manifest. The show doesn't really put them into boxes. So Hanshin, who is a character who seduces Ernst and seems to be someone who is primarily attracted to men, is masturbating to a painting of a woman. I like that they threw that in there. It's not so clear cut that people are always attracted to one specific thing. You know, Venla with her scene with the switch, as we talked about, that's a very complicated sexual scene that's also not sexual at all in some ways. That's her manifestation of these sexual feelings. And then all of these students who have these different versions of it, you know, from the one who's fantasizing about his piano teacher to Moritz, who is really crippled by these sexual feelings that he has no ability to control or even name. He doesn't really understand what they are. I think that the way that they portray that and the way that when you are a teenager, when you are flooded with these hormones, you are kind of infused with this 
terrifying set of feelings that manifest in these weird new ways. And that especially if you don't have any framework in which to put that, it does fall into these weird side categories. And the song My Junk is so funny in some way because My Junk Is You is such an odd, like it sounds like something teenagers say. It's nothing that teenagers ever really did say. It almost feels a little bit like a pastiche of a teenage speak, but at the same time, that sense of how all-consuming crushes are and how complicated, along with the, um, oh, I'm going to wound you or you're going to be my bruise, you know, the, the world of pain and sexuality and just how all-consuming this stuff is, even when you don't really understand what sex is, it's a really accurate portrait in a really interesting way. Well, and the, using that terminology that way is so like pop rock on the radio, like totally. teenage anthem type lyrics. So it's a really great use of all that. The other thing I was going to say is like, even to like the reformatory boys and the like circle jerk is also like emblematic of the sexual frustrations of these kids. Yeah. And it's great that they they portray that spectrum too. Sex isn't just one thing in this show. And it's not only the kind of like purity of Melchior's feelings. You know, it isn't the, the kind of emotion-laced romance that exists in those scenes between them. It isn't only the students wanting to masturbate to their, to their teachers. Like th- the show isn't placing a judgment on sex itself. It's, it's showing the spectrum of everything from the feelings and the emotions that go along with sexual feelings to the kind of like dirty and sordid and kind of disgusting world of that circle of jerk, which is very far from something that feels kind of the pure imaginings of Melchior. So it, it's a really kind of subtle thing that threads through this entire show. And it, it's very effectively done. My second favorite thing is the guitar riff at the opening of Totally Fucked. So there are a few things more satisfying in theater than the adult male character saying, did you write this? And then that music that, did you write this? It's so satisfying. And I can't even talk about it without smiling because I'm so satisfied by it whenever I listen to it. Whenever I see the show, whenever I revisit it or whatever, I there's something about that song. It generally is so fantastic and I love it. But particularly that intro is so just exciting and thrilling and visceral to me. I absolutely adore it. I feel like a fool because I'm just, I have the biggest smile on my face right now. But it is so great. It's, it's iconic. And what's your number three, Annika? My last one, I just have to give it to that original production. I mean, it's one of those shows that is so marked by its original production that it's kind of hard to imagine doing it without similar costumes, a similar set. And I think that's for a very good reason. It both tips at the original setting without entirely going there. It allows the contemporary things to bleed through without it feeling super weird that you're mishmashing these worlds together. It doesn't feel like a contrast. It actually feels like they've just tapped into the emotional quick of both of those worlds and the story of the show and done this very spare, elegant production that really allowed all of that to shine in a, in a really great way. Yeah, and even just the directorial and writer's concept that they pull out microphones and it becomes a rock concert, you can't separate that from the show. I don't, I don't know that there's a way you can ever take that away. It's so much yeah. about, it's so much in the DNA of the show. Yeah in a way that's uncommon, but but clearly so impactful and successful. Yeah, and also really conveys the message right off the top that they they know what they're doing. You know, right. it's it's not jarring when they start singing this kind of 
rocky music because you just saw them. Like you can get that laugh out when you first see them pull out a microphone and it feels like incongruous perhaps. But then once it's there, they've fully brought you right there. And the original production also had seating on the stage. So that was another element of this too, that it was really intended to be close up and in your face. So my third favorite thing, all of my favorite things are kind of album related, but my third favorite thing is the Mama Who Bore Me reprise with all those ladies. They sound fierce and it's amazing harmony. And again, that intro that like, it's not on the cast recording, but in the, in the original production, there was that percussive like, ta, 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 Mama Who Bore Me. And it's like so fantastic. I love it. And again, like, there's something about the music and the visceral moments of the score that I find incredibly satisfying. And that's another one of those visceral moments that I, it's such an exciting transition that suddenly we can just transition to this world with a couple drum hits or a guitar riff. As I said in the previous favorite thing, I just, it, it's amazing. I love it. It just, it fills me with such joy. And, and the ladies sound fierce. Like they are, they're incredible and they sound amazing together and it's great harmony writing. Like everything about it is so aesthetically pleasing to me. And that brings us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about what makes this musical special, what sets it apart in the canon, so Annika, what do you think Spring Awakening's Corner of the Sky is? Well, I think it's very hard to effectively do a piece about the feelings of teenagers that doesn't feel either like it's mocking teenagers or laughing at them in some way or overwrought. And this show manages to find the perfect balance. It really makes you understand the complex feelings that are all over that stage of life without feeling like a parody, even though it does, it deals with very big emotions and it deals with them in a very poetic way, which could go very wrong. And it never does. It just feels like they nailed the tone. It feels both very serious and a little bit funny, but also very, very raw and honest. And I can't think of a show that really has captured that better, especially for the era it was in. It really captured that time and that sound in such a brilliant way. I think that's that's really what it owns. Ultimately, it's authentic, right? It has yeah. that authenticity that the cast brings, that Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik bring in the score. And then the authenticity of this style that Michael Mayer and Bill T. Jones created and crafted yeah. with their creative team that, like we've said, has gone on to inform so much of what Broadway is today and changed the narrative of what Broadway could be, what was considered yeah. commercial. Up to that point, there really had not been tons of, for lack of a better term, artsy fartsy musicals that had succeeded commercially and Spring Awakening really paved the way for that. And, you know, I, I, I hate to say that we wouldn't have gotten other things without Spring Awakening, but it did open the door and it walked so that so many other shows could run. And it, yeah. obviously it does still run, but it's it's fantastic. But it really was a trailblazer in a way that I, I think we take for granted now. And not to even mention the amount of future stars that debuted in the show. I mean, yeah. I think that's also a huge testament to how good it is and how onto something they were. Yeah, right. And as much as Steven Sater and Duncan Sheik were not interested in making a musical, 
they really went on to have great musical careers. I mean, Duncan Sheik, we have to give a shout out to Because of Win Dixie, which he wrote the music for, which was at our very own Goodspeed Opera House last summer. He's someone who, whether he likes it or not, <laughs> is a really talented musical theater writer, even though he's certainly always bringing his own style into these works. It was a real introduction to these, these strong voices. And that authenticity translating to the masses because of social media and the way the internet worked and the passionate, passionate fan base that it activated and now is almost essential on Broadway to have that kind of fandom is has become essential in a way that really was not a thing before Spring Awakening. I mean, the guilty ones paved the way for the Beatle head fans on TikTok and for all the shows that have massive fandoms on social media and have found strength in that and yeah. found their way to Broadway because of that. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it just goes to show yet again that if you really capture a specific experience that resonates with people, they will love you for it. I mean, and there should be a, a wide spectrum, a wide diversity of the kind of stories that are being told because it's wonderful to feel like your experience is being represented on stage. Well, that wraps it up from us. That concludes our deep dive into Spring Awakening. It has been an absolute joy to revisit the show for me personally. And I touched on that a little bit earlier, but I thought I'd shout it out again. And we'll see you in two weeks. And Annika, why don't you tell us what show will be in the spotlight? Well, we're going for a bit of a change of pace. And we're going to do the classic musical comedy, Guys and Dolls. When you see a guy reach for stars in the, the sky. sky. You can oh. no, no, now we started singing a musical song. I, yeah, we should not do that. I mean, I love Guys and Dolls. There's a reason that that show is still around and it's, I'm excited to... I'm excited to dive into it. And a bit of a change of pace. It's a, it's a true comedy, that one. So we're getting away from Tina Angst. Probably the all-time best musical comedy. Yeah, probably. I think that's, that's fair to say. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next week, everyone. Bye. Bye. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!